0: listening to i might be wrong a podcast hosted by myself rich neenum and my co-host henry salmon welcome you are listening to i might be wrong as always i've got henry with me but this week we're joined by guest returning guest in fact mr patrick jackson how are you doing sir
1: i'm good thank you thanks for having me back on yeah always welcome how are you henry
2: yeah, yeah life is uh life is very good I'm quite excited about this uh this album that we've bought on because we've gone big again we do keep fluctuating between kind of huge albums and big albums and, and less known albums but i think um the album that Pat's brought along is uh is a bit of a belter
1: yeah i like having the mix pat tell us who you've brought So I've brought along um, Whatever People Say I Am, That's What I'm Not by the Arctic Monkeys. And it's a a classic example of their love of the massively long title, which is prevalent throughout their work. (laughs) Listening through to that album today, the thing that struck me was
0: the ridiculous length of titles. I have a confession. The first time I listened through this album in full was yesterday.
2: Whoa. Wow, that's surprising, actually, because this came out, what? In 2006, is that right, back then? Yes. Yeah, so I would have thought that's ample time to listen to a pretty (laughs) well-known
0: album. Right, and I feel like I should have listened to it more, but I realised as I was listening through it that there were several tracks that I had literally never heard before in my life. And I think what happened was I listened to the big singles as they came out because Arctic Monkeys came with all of this pre-release excitement of this new big band that were going to be like the saviors of rock for the mid thousands. They were this, this huge behemoth even before they'd released anything. And I think I listened to a few of the singles and I loved, A bet that you look good on the dance floor. I was like, Oh, someone's doing actual proper rock. Cause I was really frustrated with the lack of proper rock music at that point. And then they released Mardi Bum and I was like, I don't really like that. And then I sort of just lost interest and, Went elsewhere and and so yeah, just didn't really listen to it. So I'm clearly missing out on this. I think it it sounds like I'm the only person in the world that hasn't really listened to the Arctic Monkeys properly. <laughs> Pat,
1: tell us about the Arctic Monkeys. Who are they? So um, it's a fairly self indulgent pick for me. You know, it's a big nostalgia trip. They're a Sheffield band. The album came out in 2006, as Henry said, and in 2006. That was my first year living in Stevenage, so my first year having moved out of town. Um, so it was the perfect time for this group to come out with this new album and really, like, fill in that kind of homesickness need. Nice. Their band were, like, 20 when it came out, so slightly younger than I was at the time, but expressing the same kind of emotions, I guess. And they'd been together since 2002-ish, so, like, you know started the band when they were, like, 16 and uh, all in school together. And and for me, the album kind of... It has kind of three pots of songs. There's, like, the frustrations of not being able to get girls to notice you. There's the frustrations of living in a run-down northern town and feeling a bit kind of like hopeless and there's not the chances for you that you want. And then there's the specific frustrations of trying to get established as a band and get a foot in the door of a fairly closed nepotistic music industry. And a lot of that resonated with me. You know, I've, I've, I've been a lot of those things. So it's, it's really, it's good to hear someone put it down as well as that and to capture the anger and the cynicism in such an interesting way.
2: Yeah, and you've got to call out Alex Herner, I guess, in all of this is the front man who, um, he's quite a, I guess, one of those figureheads that you get sometimes in bands who, um, I guess, looks great with the media with his kind of leather jackets. And he 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 really leads them quite well.
1: Yeah, he's very charismatic and he, he clearly always had this penchant for the uh, big rock front man, you know, with the leather jackets with the collars popped up strutting around <laughs> at the front. And when you see them performing, it's like him and the others doing the backing stuff it's a pretty one-man showing from from what i've seen
0: and that live performance aspect is what really drove their early popularity because they were basically willing to play any venue any venue that would have them and at the same time as doing those those early tours they were handing out demo cds and releasing stuff online and they were the first of that era of big acts particularly big rock acts to get famous through doing that, through that online presence rather than through through the more traditional routes of getting an a- A&R man to see you at a gig and decide to sign you to a record label.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you're right, the, the, the big first single went to number one kind of almost independently from, um, you know, getting exposure on MySpace and stuff like that. And that really opened a lot of industry eyes, I think, to what can be done at that sort of um, tech level. Yeah, because it was the fastest
2: selling album of all time in the uk i think it was so huge and you're right so many people noticed it almost noticed the hype more so than the band because it was in the it was in the papers it was on the tv people were talking about it in a way that doesn't often happen with british music
0: yeah and you mentioned the lyricism and i think that's such a big part of their certainly their early appeal because as you say they captured very well that feeling of life i almost feel like there's a there's a crossover with acts like the streets in terms of having that appeal from being being able to tap into something there that that a lot of people like a lot of people feel on a regular basis
1: Yeah, I think that's true. Um, They they tell a lot of stories in in the songs, which I like. And it's um, stories that are told with really nice rhythmic lyricism, which is the sort of thing that draws me in. And certainly the early albums started with stories that are really relatable about stuff that's happening in that sort of town centre. And as we've gone on, it's become more... Metaphorical imagery, sort of stories, which is less easy to uh, relate to from from my point of view. But certainly, the early stuff reminds me of people like Jake bug You know, you're telling stories of going to parties in a rough town and the sort of thing that goes down around that. Yeah, and the,
0: that lyricism is a fascinating thing when you read interviews with them. So I went and dug through a few interviews, including one from Pitchfork in 2013, where Alex Turner had talked about the fact that he was. He'd been writing lyrics for years as a teenager, but had always hidden those lyrics. He didn't want to have people laugh at him for writing more sensitive, deeper thoughts and feelings in his lyrics. So it was always just very surface level stuff. And then he was working at a bar in Sheffield where they'd have bands on every single night. And apparently one night they had The Fall playing and John Cooper Clarke, Opened for them. So he's a British punk poet, if people don't know who he is. And he's cult famous, I would say, more than famous, famous. But apparently he came on and started reciting Chicken Town and it blew Turner's mind. He was stood there pouring pints and apparently it was just Guinness going everywhere because he was so focused on listening to what this guy had to say. And that was the thing that flicked his lyrical writing into something of a different level because he realized that there were stories to be told and things to be said in a way that he felt he could do.
1: Yeah, and they performed one of his poems on the um, AM album, I think.
0: Yeah, I Want to Be Yours
1: has those
0: lyrics on it. Yeah, and that to me was really interesting because I love the idea of someone being inspired by someone when they're sort of famous, and then years later getting to work with one of their heroes in a way... They obviously very much admire each other. Apparently, when they told Clark the band name, he was one of the few people that liked it. He said that it was such a great name. It's a picture of trauma. But they are almost embarrassed by their own name. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, there's this constant thing in interviews with them where they bring up the fact that they're like, it's a shit name. It's a shit name. It's, a-. And I don't know that it is. I I never thought about it being a bad band name. It's interesting, it's different, it sort of catches your attention.
2: Yeah, it's very recognisable, which other bands just... um, I don't know, it's funny about band names, isn't it? You get some ones which just work. A lot of the bands that we've talked about have have very noticeable ones, and I think this is no exception. So I'm surprised that they don't like it, because... Everyone knows who you're talking about. You, you don't have to mention any
1: monkeys, just mention the Arctic part and you know exactly who you're talking about. Or well, maybe it stems from you kind of brought up in a culture that encourages you not to try to stand out too much because, you know, that's not necessarily taken well throughout the rest of the society. So that's got to overhang a good part of your early development. Yeah. Yeah, and these guys are really
0: interesting in terms of where they come from. So they're a, they're one of the classic bands who are we were bored, we had nothing better to do, so we formed a band almost just to have something to do. But they also were really frustrated by the lack of anyone doing punky rock at that time. So they'd been listening to a lot more hip-hop. They'd been listening to Dr. Dre and Roots Maneuver and bands like that. And that was sort of a driver behind some of their lyricism because they were so impressed with how much wordiness there needs to be in a hip-hop track to keep it interesting.
2: We've got numerous examples of of bands who, uh, who've who just quoted hip-hop artists as being the drive and the inspiration because they're, they're almost more cutting-edge than
1: than any other form of music right now. And I wasn't aware of that with these, but you can certainly see that influence in songs like From the Ritz to the Rubble, which is just kind of spoken word over a bass. It makes sense. Did you find them when you were still in Sheffield or were they one that you found after you'd moved? It was after I'd moved, yeah. So the album came out like my first year living here and, yeah, got it that first year. So it was it was um, tuning in really nicely with those uh, missing old schoolmates, missing being at home, that sort of stuff, you know, in a new unfamiliar surroundings trying to establish myself. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. So you,
0: I guess, what, just picked it up when it was being played on the radio and all that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, pretty much, yeah.
0: We should dive into the album. What are tracks that you particularly
1: like ones that particularly appeal to you i think i bet that you look good on the dance floor is probably my least favorite and that's only (laughs) only because it's the one you hear everywhere right so you've got an entire album's worth of great stuff and it gets ignored for the majority of the time by the majority of people so it's the one i'm least bothered about because it's the one i've heard the most by a country mile that's a
2: good answer because i think that's my favorite track of theirs
0: For me, it was the one that really grabbed my attention, because I think I would have been in and around home in London at the time, and XFM played it to death. And so I'd heard it a bunch, and I loved, loved that raw rock energy that you got from it. It's it's spiky, it's punky, it's got fuzzy guitars, but like rock fuzzy rather than hazy, psychedelic fuzzy. And it really grabbed my attention. It's, it's a perfect example of a almost callback to those 70s and 80s rock tracks that are only yeah. two and a half, three minutes long.
2: It's got swagger. It's got some some real style. And again, that's um, Turner just doing his thing. But you kind of know that you're in safe hands the way that he projects himself. And even though he's talking about, through the rest of the album, about difficult times, and as you say, struggling to get into situations he's got this confidence about it That
1: kind of he's going to bring you along for the ride it's quite cool absolutely I and mean, it's a guaranteed floor filler if you're in a place that's with b and that's for sure and I'd, i'm not saying i dislike the tracks just it's yeah. um, familiarity breeds contempt a little bit <laughs> so <laughs> for people just classic for people who
2: um then aren't as familiar with the album where are the hidden
1: gems which are the ones where we should um we really should listen to more that we don't I like the kind of more cynical ones, I guess. So Fake Tales of San Francisco is fantastic. And it's about, you know, being at a gig with a band who think they're brilliant, but are doing self-indulgent stuff for themselves and not for the audience. And that is very relatable. I've all been there. The way he uses the language in that song is so real. It's so real to being out in a Sheffield place with your mates and how people would actually talk. And you don't get that very much. I like Mardi Bum a lot as well, which um, Rich brought up as a song that turned him off. Because it's just, I don't know, it's it's a nice um, kind of tempo break in the album. It's quite a, a relentless paced album. That one kind of tells a story of just a, a relationship and um, how you get to know each other, get a little bit of... Um, Arguments and trying to build that out and work it out together. And it's that that was relatable at the time, just having moved in with my girlfriend for the first time as well. I want to clarify why it put me off. And it was nothing to do with Mardi Bum,
0: the song itself, which I agree with you is a lovely little ditty about trying to make relationships work when they're not always perfect. And it's more to do with the fact that I thought these guys were going to be just a balls to the wall, full on rock outfit. And when they didn't turn out to be that i think i just went ah, i'm done with this and threw it away with yeah. the impatience of someone in their 20s
2: which is probably i guess a bit unfair listening to the rest of the album which is quite rocky and upbeat i mean i think miley bum is almost a an
0: outlier i think if i would bought the album and listened to it through a few times it probably would have ended up being one of my favorites back then but i just discarded it instead I wonder whether I also did a bit of the Henry style Oh they're popular now, I'm gonna <laughs> <laughs> Guilty, guilty of that so many times. I do want to bring something else up though, which is I don't think they are nearly as pigeonholable even within this album as just a pure garage rock punky outfit. Because there's stuff in here that's really different and really interesting. So perhaps Vampires is a bit strong, but is way (laughs) looser than you'd think a band who are trying to be punky and establish themselves would be. There's sort of stuff hanging off the edges and falling around all over the place. It's almost got this rumba-like breakdown in the middle with that combination of the bass and the tom-toms that's It's got a similar feel to Dancing Shoes as well. And I think they're more creative in this album than they're given credit for, where people just think of it as a straight-up rock album.
1: Yeah, what you get from this and what you get throughout the other albums is they've got a really good ear for when to put in a really meaningful pause and then step it back up again. And they've got a nice ear for bass lines and a nice ear for, well, obviously, solos, so Alex can strut his stuff at the front. He loves a bit of that. And that comes <laughs> through in quite a few. And uh, that song's a great one as well. That's It's a great example of that feeling of people around you trying to hold you back and pull you back into the kind of status quo mass of things when you're trying to stand out and do something a bit different and take a risk. You know, why are you traveling and getting paid a pound a song and barely making back your petrol money when you could be, you know, working down William Hill at minimum wage and uh, holding down a proper steady job. What what are you doing dreaming, kid? You know, that sort of thing. And that comes through in a few of them particularly strongly in that one, I think.
0: Yeah, and I love the live feel to this. So most of the album was recorded in one or a few takes they'd do a song a day for the whole of the recording session and i love that feel of the vibrancy that they were trying to capture because they knew that how they were live was probably their strongest sound
2: yeah the sound across the album's really constant isn't it some bands will will change all of the instrumentation and the not so much the production but you'll hear different inputs into all the songs whereas this album is kind of it's all done in the same way it's constant and it means that you can listen to any song on this album and you just you you know it's from you know it's from this album
1: yeah yeah i think that's fair so given your take on Mardi Bum i'd be interested in your take on Riot Fan because from the title and from the majority of the rest of the album you'd think that would be a really high impact high intensity song and then it starts with just alex singing in a kind of broken voice over the top of a really quiet guitar it's, a, it's an interesting like uh, curveball. I love it. I think it's a great track, but I love it for the humour
0: in the lyrics more than necessarily the actual sound of the, the music itself.
1: Yeah.
2: I think this is the precursor to quite a lot of the later stuff they've done. And I wonder whether he's shipping in a kind of almost prototype of things to come where he's just seeing what would happen if he slowed down that tempo. That's my take on it.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And you kind of get that bit with uh, 505 at the end of the second album as well, where it's uh, suddenly we've got a bit of a kind of quiet, drifty, almost whimsical sort of imaginative song with a higher timbre kind of break in the middle just to keep people engaged. But, you know, it's it's certainly, it indicates the direction of travel for the next couple of albums.
2: Yeah, they've got this kind of range, which on the first album, as you say, it's this kind of, it comes as a whole, but you just start to realise that and I don't know whether it's just Alex Turner or whether it's the rest of the band, but they, they have other directions that they can go in. And it's just, I guess, playing in those different areas. It's quite cool.
0: I think there's also an element of them growing up and expanding their musical abilities because they're very open about the fact that they weren't necessarily the most technically talented at the point they recorded this first album and that they've got better at the instruments, got better at what they want to do over time. This is it is it sounds a bit garagey, it sounds quite raw, it but the following albums become more uh, slick maybe just more competent not that they're not competent in here but they become more competent as they kind of move
1: on over time yeah I read a quote that was uh, that said oh yeah we, we really found our form when Josh Hom taught us what music should sound like <laughs> and that kind of grated with me because it's like there's not one thing music should sound like and what people like differs person to person and what you're describing as what music should sound like is actually the stuff that you've produced that I like the least. <laughs> it's um, I, I like the raw stuff, and I've liked each album slightly less, and that's not to say dislikes, right, because I like all of them a lot. But, yeah, there's not one I go back to more than the first one. Right. I mean, we covered this
0: on the Block Party episode where I found it immensely frustrating that they continually moved further from that raw vitality that you've got on the first album, and that feels the same here, where there's an earnestness here with them just wanting to do something that's in their heads. That's amazing. Yeah. There's so many, there's so many debut albums I can think of that have that. Oh my God, there's so much promise here. And then the band never quite reaches those heights ever again, but you've stuck with them over the years, right? So favorite worst nightmares, the next album, I assume you went out on release day and bought that.
1: Yes. And still phenomenal. I go back to it slightly less than the first one, but it's, um, back to back to back to back excellence. i was i was going to say actually
2: this album for me almost the way it starts off those first four or five tracks they're just constantly excellent
0: any in
1: particular that we should be uh throwing on the playlist for folks to listen to
2: i like brian storm just what a brilliant start to an album
1: yeah, and you talked about the kind of growth, and I think Balaclava is a good example of that. So we've gone from songs about how difficult it is to get noticed by girls to songs about how people are trying to push themselves on you, even though you know that they're already dating someone else and the trouble that that could cause. So <laughs> It's amazing what happens when
0: you get a bit of fame. Quite. And also have an album that's one of the best-selling of all time. It's got to help, right? Well, that's another thing as well. Is they they weren't with a major record label. They went on to a fairly indie label when they were first signed up, specifically because they didn't want to be part of that machine. That's kind of a cool thing. that They've gone their own way a little bit on that front and not just tried to go down the route that will get them the, the most attention, the biggest machine behind them, and they've still succeeded.
2: The thing that impresses me most about this album is that they've... They've come off the back of the fastest selling UK album of all time. They've got another album that's come out about a year later with another 12 songs. And always people talk about a band's difficult second album and they've just steamrolled this. It's not a difficult album, they've just produced it and it's, it's really good again, which is, I don't think that's that common. I think quite a few bands have a bit of a, a struggle with the
0: second one. Oh, 100%. It's a massive cliche for a reason. Bands struggle. You've got so many years of built-up creativity that allows you to just blurt out that first album and then all of a sudden you've got to come up with a whole load of new stuff in, what, a year because the record label's desperate to get something new out to sell more records. So for me, from this album, Fluorescent Adolescence, the, the outstanding track, but that's the one that everyone knows from here, right? Yep. Uh, They've released albums pretty consistently. You've got Humbug in 2009, Suck It and See in 2011, and then AM in 2013, and then A Break before 2018 is their most recent album. Are there specific albums you say you've liked them a little less each time? Humbug seems to be one that no one really knows as well. It's almost a bit
1: ignored. I like Humbug. I mean, Humbug's the first time they hooked up with Josh Harm, I think, and it's got um, Queens of the Stone Age influence, they say, and I think you can feel that coming through. There's some really good tracks on there, like um, Crying Lightning, Potion Approaching, where it's still got that rhythmical lyricism to it, which I really like. It's less telling relatable stories and more creating images, so it's it's slightly different, but it's still got songs like cornerstone on it which are talking about you know sheffield pub music venues and stuff like that so it's a, a balance from the earlier stuff bridging to the later stuff i think yeah listening to cornerstone
0: you can definitely hear queens of the stone Age guitars and, and things like that in there that are a bit different to what they've been doing before
1: yeah and then you get into the style of tracks like dance little liar which are moving away from rock and into a still a kind of High tempo. I don't know what genre to describe it as, but it's um, it's definitely different.
0: Okay, so I feel like we should jump to AM because that's the the other big album from these guys, the the one that everyone raves about. Is it a better album, or sounds like in your mind it probably isn't the
1: better of the uh, the two? Well, I would say my favourite song of any of their songs is on um, Suck it and See because Don't sit down because I move your chair has just a phenomenal bass line and fantastic lyrics. I could listen to that song all day. It's a great song.
0: And it's got another ridiculously long song title again.
1: Yeah, I'm a sucker for those because, you know, I'm a frontman. So if I have to read out a nice long title, I get a breather <laughs> between tracks, which is helpful. <laughs> this is this one that you do as a cover? It's not. I can't convince them to do an Arctic Monkeys track. It's really disappointing. Ah, that's surprising. Well, I'm the youngest in the band by like 20 years, so, you know. All <laughs> right. It's all about credence, clear water revival. That's what the kids want these days, right? <laughs> yeah, something like that. You mentioned AM, Rich. I mean, if you
2: look at just the the plays on, say, Spotify, mm-hmm. that album's just taken off massively to the point where I was actually surprised. I was expecting when I loaded up my Spotify to see some of their earlier stuff being the most played, but AM, in terms of popularity, is just huge.
0: Yeah. Do I want to know? Has a billion
1: listens, which is insane. There's some good tracks on it. Arabella's a really good track. It's got some real good drive to it. But there's some stuff in the middle that is just lame. And you never think, listen to the first album, that you'd come across a lame marketing Monkeys track, but <laughs> it's, it's almost like number one party anthem. It's almost like you're spoofing something and got too close to what you're spoofing, so you've lost the humour and just got this... I don't, I don't know what they were trying to do with it.
2: You've made a really good point here, because I don't know whether in some of the later stuff they, they're they taking the piss or not. And it just, it wobbles on that, on the edge of, is it a caricature? Like we haven't gone on to Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino, which is just a total concept weird album, which is completely out there. And I just can't work out whether that's the band exploring new areas or just they don't have anything to say anymore about the, the nightclubs and the dive bars of before and they're just having a go it, i i don't know but you're right it does sound like some of these songs are a bit off the wall
0: probably the reason for this album being so popular on spotify is the fact that it was their biggest us hit up to that point so you've not only got it being big in the UK, you've also got this US following and listening that comes off the back of it as well. And some of this stuff does sound more like the kind of thing you'd expect to hear on American radio. I think have they moved out to LA by this point. I know they're based in LA now.
1: Yeah, and maybe that explains, you know, it's more California, less Sheffield. That's why I find it less relatable. But also, <laughs> Mad Sounds and Number One Party Anthem are just limp. And that's not what I listen to Arctic Monkeys for.
0: Yeah, you want to bounce around a dirty indie disco dance floor or a, a dirty gig venue to their to their music. That's what they're there for.
2: But it does sound. It, it is a cool point that we've talked about going across the channel before. We've when we talked about the Beach Boys, we talked about a lot of the other artists in the sixties coming across and the, the the British invasion having to almost tailor their music for American audiences. And the Arctic Monkeys have done a great job of going across to the States and getting an audience to buy into them, which is always the, it's the big old thing with British artists. It's a tricky thing to do, to go across and get noticed and get picked up. And, and credit to them, they've, they've delivered music which can be accepted over there. Yeah, and you're
0: probably listening to a lot of bands out there that will then have that influence on your music.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, just listening to Star Treatment off the start of Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino, that to me sounds more like a 70s West Coast rock outfit than, you know, almost not quite surf rock, but certainly hazy psychedelia, which just you would never guess that they're the same band if you listen to this and their first album.
2: Yeah, tra- Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino, I really like, and I bet... Patrick you don't <laughs> it's just it's so different it's like a, it is a different band almost
1: yeah well we had this direction of travel from kind of relatable stories to poetic imagery and a kind of steady slowing in tempo I guess and then there was the hiatus and I'd been put off a little bit they only enjoying really half of the AM album or slightly more than half whereas all of the others had been like I can listen to all of this quite happily. And then the title put me off, and the title track, the single that came out, I listened to that when it came out, and was like, this this, this sounds like the um, Flight of the Concords David Bowie's in Space uh, song, but if you extracted all the humour, like it was some sort of NFL fantasy podcast, then you end up with this, um, you know, you end up with this track that... I don't know I don't know what they're trying to do. Yeah, I um I like it. I just
2: think it's totally um totally expansive and different and it's like reading a sci-fi novel and I'm cool with that, but if you want the Arctic Monkeys to dance around a living room too, this isn't it by a long shot.
1: Yeah. And I'm not saying it's bad, you know. It just feels like they've maybe outgrown me artistically and I find it a little bit kind of pretentious and boring I'm not into that but I'm not saying all the people shouldn't like it that's fine.
0: I do wonder with bands when they move this far away from an original sound particularly if it's driven by one band member in particular and I'm not saying this is but sometimes spinning off a new band a new solo thing can often be more successful and a better place to put this stuff than pissing off all your existing fans (laughs) because you sound nothing like what you used to sound like
2: that's true you, i guess you can just say we went in a completely different direction and if you want to listen to the original stuff that's fine we can play that at a gig chill out we'll cover you we'll have your backs covered
0: well it's like bands i mean the shins doing various different side projects the number of things that he's done there that have fed back into the Shin's sound eventually, but sort of spun off all these other ideas. I, I appreciate having those almost in set because then when you go and see them live, you know what you're expecting from the sound. You might you might go to an Arctic Monkeys gig now and be like, Oh, it's gonna be five songs in here that I just I'm gonna be at the bar getting a beer <laughs> because I'm not interested in, in that specific song.
2: That is true. there aren't that many bands who can who have a very diverse collection of songs and can bring them together at a gig obviously radio is the obvious example of a band that can do both and right. you can just take an album from the front or the back of their collection and know you're okay but i would have thought you're right if you go to an arctic monkeys gig which i haven't that you probably wouldn't want to be listening to stuff about moon bases and also stuff about dance floors at the same time
0: yeah, I mean, I do want to highlight one track on here, which is you can't be mad at a band who have included a track called The World's First Ever Monster Truck Front Flip. I was going to
2: call that out. <laughs> a great name for a song, no matter what. <laughs> you, you kind of wonder whether he's just heard that phrase and has just gone, I have to write a song about this, whatever. I don't care about the content. Just get that in the album track listing.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, to be fair, that probably does link back to Sheffield Wednesday. So there was a cup final back in our history where they cut off the end of the cup final to go to Revenge of the Monster Trucks. So there was a Sheffield Wednesday fanzine called Revenge of the Monster Trucks for years because we didn't see the end of our cup final. No way. Okay. <laughs> Good link. Is that is that the Wednesday Arsenal it cup final? It may well final? have been, yeah. The one that made me cry when I was eight, yeah. Aww. Uh, all right. You mentioned live, Henry. Have you seen them live, Pat? I have seen them live. It was one of my least enjoyed gigs of all time. And that's not really down to them. So it was at the O2. I was sitting as far away from the stage as you call third row in the center. So it was like watching a TV with some big screens (laughs) alongside it. The sound quality wasn't great. The vaccine supported them and their front man was obnoxious. Just there was a lot of like swearing to try and be cool in front of a big crowd. And it was just embarrassing and actually put me off their music for a few years which it shouldn't have because their music is good but the gig didn't really grab me and the Monkeys were all right but not as good as I wanted them to be or expected because of I don't know the way I was viewing it I guess
0: yeah that's unfortunate because I've been to the O2 a few times and that top deck of the seating is just shitty the sound up there is always terrible I think I think it was the National, no, Arcade Fire that I saw there, and it took them four songs to dial in any level of volume to the top deck. It was really frustrating.
2: Well, I can counter that by saying I've been on the floor in the O2 and it was shit there too. I can't remember who I saw, but it's rubbish. Um, Uh, Worst gig venue I've ever been to. So I I, I think we'll forgive them that in that let's just blame the venue for being terrible. Don't ever go to a gig at the O2.
1: It's partly the long journey there and having to pay like airport prices for a meal in there because you've travelled for three hours to get there and you've got to travel three hours back afterwards. But I think I would have enjoyed it a lot more had I seen them in the lead mill on their first tour or something.
0: Yeah, I suspect you're probably right on that front. Okay, have they been an influence on other parts of your listening or are they a band that you listen to because of other influences
1: they're a band i listen to because of where they're from and it's kind of led me to people like jake borg i mentioned before the sherlocks in a roundabout way it led me to richard hawley who is like Older and more established than them, but fantastic. Standing at Sky's Edge, what an album that is. Mm -hmm. I'm a huge fan of Richard Hawley.
2: Was he in the Long Pigs or am I making that up? Wait a second, I've got to find this out.
0: (laughs) Possibly making it up. I don't know. My brain went, yes, as soon as you said that, but I have zero actual credible knowledge to, to confirm or deny that statement.
2: Yes, Richard Hawley was in the Long Pigs, um, who are one of my favourite bands of the 90s. But you're right, his solo career is really worth looking into. I'm I'm a big fan and it's quite similar in the way that he does do a lot of storytelling in the same way that the Arctic Monkeys do. Great shout actually, someone who I've not heard of or listened to for a
1: while. Yeah, that man tells an incredible story. It's lower tempo and a bit less aggressive, but it's, as he says, it's lyrically similar. And the, the way Richard Hawley builds sound is just, it's magnificent. Is it Cole's Corner? Cole's Corner's incredible. That's a brilliant album.
2: Yeah, Cole's Corner is is a really, really brilliant album. And yeah, if you like the Arctic Monkeys and thinking of where to go next, check that one out, because that, that's a cracker.
0: Well done. Yeah, I think it's Born Under a Bad Sign on that album. is one of my favorites of his his songwriting on there is just amazing. He's got such a great voice.
1: Yeah, Standing at the Sky's Edge kind of borderlines um what Elbow do in uh, uh, some of their tracks like so it's it's that sort of ballpark of music if that's your thing.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree with you in terms particularly of the storytelling and the ability to craft that experience in your imagination is is just fantastic from from him and from them we should probably wrap this up it's uh been brilliant having you on mate thanks so much for joining us where can people find you if they want to tell you that you're wrong about the arctic monkeys i'm <laughs> sure they'll tell me that i'm wrong about how i've treated the arctic monkeys
1: yeah all you uh tranquility based stands can come at me at roteus underscore johansson <laughs> on twitter
0: <laughs> you mentioned your own band Where where can people find that
1: uh, we are at Recall underscore Vinyl on Twitter, and we will hopefully be at Ballstock in a couple of months' time, which is very exciting news. What's your What's your musical style? Uh, we're a covers band, kind of rock and indie covers, Foo Fighters, Creedence Clearwater Revival, and anything within that spectrum, which is a pretty good spectrum. Awesome.
0: Nice. All right, you can find us on I Might Be Wrong UK on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We will talk to you on there, I'm sure, and we will hopefully be back next week cheers everyone thanks for joining me gentlemen it's been fun cheers thanks rich thank you for listening to another episode of i might be wrong